0: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on Earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com.
1: Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Caston, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Today's guest, John Yingling, comes to us who are engineer and composer Mike Moss. They know each other from the music scene. Mike, will you tell us a little bit about your friend John?
2: He's a fantastic restaurant owner and friend to all who he knows, musicians and everyone alike. I happen to know him from the Chandler Travis Band down on Cape Cod, and I met him in Jamaica where he hosted us at his wonderful home to stay for about 10 days when we played down there maybe three years ago. So this is John Yingling.
1: Tell me how you started out.
2: I started out in Wildwood, New Jersey, making pizzas. When I was a kid, 15, I got a job in a pizza place as a dishwasher in a restaurant that sold pizza. And the next year, I went to another pizza place and told them that I knew how to make pizzas and that I was looking for a job. And so they gave me a job. Even though when they saw me make pizzas, they realized I didn't really know how to make them, they still... Gave me a job and I was a quick learner and I learned how to make pizzas there. And then I made pizzas there from like, I started probably in 64 working there. And I probably worked there until 69. And in 69, a guy offered me a partnership at a pizza truck and I took it. And I had a pizza truck. I was partners with this guy and I drove around Wildwood Crest, New Jersey to motels in Wildwood Crest. I went to college in Oneonta.
1: So let me just understand. So you're driving around in this pizza truck, which appears in my mind right now to be the, the early generation of a food truck. So food let's truck. call you a pioneer. Um, a, it a was pizza a food pioneer. Truck. And you're driving around to motels in this pizza truck where you are now a partner.
2: Yes, but my, my partner owned the pizza place that I worked out of. And so I ran the truck and he ran the pizza place and I would go in the pizza place and make the dough and do everything for the truck. And then we would split the money that I took in three ways. So every day I made a hundred dollars. Now that was a lot of money in 1969 for a kid. I was working seven days a week, making $700 a week. That was probably like three or four times as much as my father made at that time. Wow. So that was good money for a kid. But every day I would go out with basically a hundred pizzas. And uh, I was selling them for three dollars a piece, and I was selling drinks too. So, and I would keep <laughs> one third of the money, you know.
1: <laughs> and how did you parlay the partnership in the pizza truck, where you were making this excellent amount of money, to the next part of your career?
2: I came to Promontown in 1970. I had worked every summer up until 1969 summer, from when I was like 15. Because I always needed money to either go to school, high school, or go to college. But then when I graduated from college, I could take the summer off. So I did. I took the summer off, basically. And I hitchhiked up to where my sister was working in Provincetown. And I noticed that there was no pizza place here. So I started telling my friends, I think I'm going to open a pizza place in Provincetown. I've been always able to visualize things and have them happen. I've been lucky like that. My daughter, Edvige, has that ability, too, I've noticed.
1: (laughs) Handy. Handy. But anyway,
2: (laughs) so I just visualized a pizza place. Like, I was going to open up a pizza place in Provincetown. So I just told my friends that. and I didn't really have any money, but I had the ability to make uh, a couple thousand bucks. So I had these friends that lived on a commune in Katona, New York. And uh, I went to visit them. And right when I got there, guy, Paul Schneider was telling my friend, John Patterson, that um, he had just been to Town and he wanted to open a pizza place there. Well, you should talk to Jingles because he's a pizza expert and he told me the same thing. So right then I showed up, which is really weird. We ended up doing a couple lines of Coke and smoking a joint and we got in a bus and came to Town. That was 1971. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and you became partners just yes. on and the, the strength, strength of that.
2: <laughs> and we each basically, he borrowed $3,000 from his grandfather and I Good. had $3,000 that I could sell a couple of things I had and stuff. And I ended up with $3,000 and we came with $6,000. We opened a pizza place in Provincetown and that's where Spiritus Pizza started. That's how Spiritus Pizza started. The first night we were here, the first couple of nights we were here, we slept in the graveyard. And but we were since we were like cute young kids at the time, I was like 20, I think I was 21 or 22. I was 22, I guess. And Paul was maybe 23. And we were like good looking guys, you know, young guys. And we were going around looking for a place to open a pizza place. And we met this guy, this old guy, Jimmy Simpson, and he had an empty shop. And he said, um, he liked this right away. He said, well, you boys want to open up a pizza place here? We said, yeah. He said, well, you go right ahead. You can open up a pizza place there. When you get the money, you can pay me the rent. It's $1,500 for the summer. So we moved in without any money or anything, just being cute. In those days, if you're cute in Provincetown, you could open your own pizza place. Just go to the <laughs> <play
1: again. laughs> so you had been sleeping in a graveyard. Can we just not gloss over that for a second? Tell me about yeah. that. What was that like?
2: Oh well, well, we we thought the graveyard would be a good, you know, it was illegal in Provincetown to sleep outside, so we figured the graveyard would be like a nice, safe spot where the cops wouldn't look for you. So we just like camped out in the graveyard.
1: And then you just started constructing a pizza house, pizza parlor, and well, once Jimmy gave us
2: a shop, there was a little apartment in the back of the shop that we could sleep in. So we started staying there, and then we started working on the shop, and. I ended up going down to Wildwood, New Jersey. I ended up calling my old boss in Wildwood, New Jersey and asking him about where I could get pizza ovens. I had no idea where you would get pizza ovens from, you know? And he said, it just happens that I have two that I'm trying to get rid of. If you want them, you can have them for $500. So we drove down. A friend of ours had a old international harvester, one of those international Harvester station wagons. Like I don't know if you remember what they looked like. I but- do. Yeah, they were like tanks. Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, International Harvest Station, but it was really old. It had like the whole floor was rotted out of it and everything. But we drove down there and we put the two pizza ovens in it. They both fit in it. So on our way back on the Jersey Turnpike, we got stopped by a cop, a state trooper, and he made us go into a weighing station, right? To get weighed. We were basically the back of the thing was like dragging on the road. Oh yeah. And, and um and he uh he he, he like he, you know, we opened up the door and he saw there was no floor in the thing. Like, you could just see the road. And he saw the pizza was in the back. He said, what are you guys doing anyway? And we said, we're trying to for a pizza place in Providence, Massachusetts. And we just bought these pizza office in a while and we're trying to take them back. He said, you're way overweight, man. He said, look, just go. He said, just be careful, okay? <laughs> just get out of here. And he just let us go. <laughs> Wow. So we just drove. We drove the rest of the way, no problem. We got here and we figured out how to hook the ovens up. I was like the gas man. I hooked them up, and uh, you know we built a counter and stuff. We didn't have any refrigeration or anything. We had made the dough by hand in a in like a wash tub, and uh, that's how we started out. Some a guy a guy named Primo Africanus who owned a restaurant called Primos gave us an old refrigerator that he was throwing away. So that was our first refrigerator. We built a walk-in, and so we had to buy the stuff to keep the walk-in cold. But we actually built our own walk-in, so we had a walk-in refrigerator. In Tony Bourdain's book, he talks about how he slept on top of the walk-in. We had a mattress up there, and Tony used to sleep up there on top of our walk-in.
1: Why was Tony Bourdain sleeping on your walk-in? It just looked kind of cozy and comfy and human-sized to sleep on top of your walk-in.
2: Yeah, well, it was like a little loft. I mean, it had like about a three-foot, you know, it had three foot to the ceiling from the top of the (laughs) walk-in, and it was kind of warm up there, you know. (laughs) So you could sleep up there. It was nice up there. It wasn't a problem. (laughs) Tony needed a place to sleep. We let him sleep up there.
1: Yeah, it was better than the graveyard, perhaps.
2: Special- yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 well, by then, we, were, we had already upscaled from the graveyard. I, I think I might have already bought a house by then, but probably not.
1: So your first summer, you're there. You're giving sort of like new animation to the concept of Rube Goldberg. You just figured everything out and made it start, with or without permits, whatever you were doing.
2: Oh, no, we got permits. They, <laughs> gave, they gave us all. In those days, it was easy to get permits. It was just like the licensing board. They just said, sure, you're going over to pizza place. Great idea. Go for it.
1: <laughs> and
2: like how did it go? Oh, we were a big success right away. We started making money right away. I mean, and we were smart enough not to pay ourselves too much and to buy the equipment we needed. As we got money, we started buying equipment. So the first thing we bought in July was a dough machine. Cause making dough by hand is a bitch. So, and we called the, the dough machine July Jones, July Jones, because it came in July and it rescued us <laughs> from making dough by hand. And then we bought probably a refrigerator after that. I guess maybe the next year I bought a sailboat.
1: <laughs> I guess you did do well if the next year you bought a sailboat. It meant you could take some time off from the. Well, uh-huh.
2: well, we were only open like that was the whole idea of opening a pizza place in Provincetown. You only had to work in the summer.
1: So, did you close in the winters, or did you? Yeah. We always
2: closed in the winter. Yeah.
1: So, year one was a success, and how did you decide to make it the locus of your life? I'm now a Provincetown person. I'm doing this pizza thing. How did that all flow out?
2: Well, I know how to run restaurants and I know how to make pizzas, you know. I learned all that probably the hard way, but I really didn't know how to do much else. I was a history major in college, you know, like that and whatever it costs for a cup of coffee. would get you a cup of coffee. You know, that's about it. That history major, what are you going to do? Teach history. I could teach history. (laughs) I, I didn't know how to do anything else. That's all I knew how to do. And... I kind of enjoyed it. I got bored with pizza after a few years. That's why I opened up all these other restaurants.
1: So tell me about, so you got bored with pizza after a couple of years, and then you started opening new restaurants. What came next?
2: Well, first of all, we opened another pizza place on the other side of Provincetown. So now we had two in Provincetown. We had Angie's Pizza on one side of Provincetown, and my pizza place on this side of Provincetown. And then I had a girlfriend who couldn't get a job. So I said, I'm gonna open a restaurant for you in my apartment. And my apartment was over Angie's Pizza. So I, we went in there and just started ripping out all the walls and everything, and we made it into a restaurant. And while I was doing that, the health inspector came to me and he said, I hear you wanna open up a restaurant in your apartment. And I said, yeah. He said, come here, I gotta show you something. And he took me around behind the property where I was gonna build in the restaurant, this apartment that I was renting as an apartment. And he says, I got to show you something. And he took me out back where there was all this beach grass, high beach grass. And in the middle of the beach grass, it was like an open cesspool with no top on it. He said, If you're going to open a restaurant up there, the first thing you got to do is put a top on that cesspool. I said, No problem. So the next day, I had a couple guys come and put a top on the cesspool. And we opened the restaurant. I sold the sailboat to get the, to buy the stove for the restaurant.
1: So, I mean, how big could the restaurant be if it was in your apartment? uh it was about how many tables uh, well it was a pretty decent sized
2: apartment it was as big as the downstairs pizza place which was downstairs so you know it was a decent sized apartment it had like a few bedrooms we ripped everything out and gutted it so it was one big room it ended up being one big room and that room was probably had about 60 seats
1: and you were cooking out of this residential kitchen
2: uh, the kitchen that was the kitchen of the house, yeah, of the apartment. But we put a restaurant stove in it and a hood in there. And, you know, we built a walk-in. Another, we were good at building walk-ins by that, that point. <laughs> and, we had to put those together.
1: And what was the concept of that restaurant? Not pizza, right?
2: Health food. Uh-huh. Healthy, healthy, good food. Like healthy, good food. Like not the kind of food you found in every other restaurant. We became a really popular breakfast joint. And we made our own whole wheat bread. We made all our own pastries and stuff. We made croissants up there. And we had the first espresso machine in Provincetown. Nobody ever heard of a fucking espresso machine. We had an espresso machine. It was the first one in Provincetown.
1: I can just see it.
2: (laughs) So we did good. We did good for breakfast. And then we started opening for dinner. And we didn't do as well for dinner. In fact, I kept losing money on the dinner end and making money on the breakfast. I wasn't really making any money up there. It was a difficult kind of restaurant to make money at. It wasn't like the pizza place. But luckily, I had the pizza place that was still making more money all the time. It was doing great. It helped subsidize that place. And then eventually, I broke up with that girlfriend. And then I had another girlfriend who worked there as a waitress, and I broke up with her, she left town, and then I kind of lost interest in it. So I rented it to this other woman, who rented it for a few years. And then when she stopped renting it, one of my old girlfriends wanted to rent it. And I ended up selling it to her like about 20 years ago. But, and now <laughs> she has she's rent, she's renting it to somebody now. She's done with it too. So
1: <laughs> you've been cycling through girlfriends and cycling through restaurants. And when did you start sort of expanding your real estate empire? And we'll be back with John Yingling in a moment, and he'll talk about how his pizza experience led to a whole real estate saga.
0: This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at WisconsinCheese.com. And we're
1: back with John Yingling. You've been cycling through girlfriends and cycling through restaurants. And when did you start expanding your real estate empire?
2: Well, in 1981, I got married. And my wife, actually, my girlfriend was pregnant when we got married. It was like a shotgun wedding. So
1: thank you for sharing that with the entire world.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's okay. It was. In fact, our wedding invitation was... uh, a shotgun coming out of like the side of the invitation that my head and Titi's had while we were getting married. That was the wedding invitation. But anyway, we got married. Then we had the kid. And then I realized I needed to make more money. In 78, the landlord, Jimmy Simpson, sold my pizza place to the women who owned the pipe paper in the back. It was like a lesbian bar in the back. And they wanted to raise my rent to like $12,000 a year from like $5,000 a year. And that was too much. So I, I was looking around the neighborhood to see if I could find like a place that I could buy in the neighborhood. Cause I wanted to be in that block. That was a good block for a pizza place. I dug that. Right. So I went down to the hardware store and I was telling my buddy, Bing who ran the hardware store, my problem. And he said, John, he said, it just happens that the optometrist across the street just bought a house and he wants to sell his house and it's going to come up for sale in a couple of days. So I got right on it. I offered like I think 81,000 for it and they accepted it. And that's when I got into real estate. I bought that. And then when I had a kid, I started thinking that I needed to expand and get into more real estate, especially after I had the second kid and then the third kid and then the fourth kid.
1: Oh, it's getting expensive.
2: You know, I started realizing like college and all this shit's gonna come up and like, I gotta make more money. I gotta figure this out. Using my equity in one building to buy another building and so forth. And now I own five buildings on Commercial Street. And the reason for that is because I learned about business really from playing Monopoly as a kid. I didn't really know anything about business, but I knew that Monopoly was like the way it worked. So like I figured if I had them all together, I can put up motels.
1: So like you got all the purple ones and then you were going to get all the green ones. Yeah, yeah. Well, the red ones, I think. (laughs) It's the big ones. Yeah. You know, I don't think it's that you have this ability to like imagine things. I actually think they have an ability to cause things. The dominoes aren't just falling. You're directing the dominoes.
2: Well, you know, like the bank building was a big one. There was a bank for sale and they couldn't sell it. You know, they couldn't sell it. just looked like kind of like a stodgy old bank, you know what I mean? And But I kept looking at it and thinking, that bank's got potential. It's the highest point on Commercial Street. It's like solid, built out of solid brick with like 18 inch walls. They were asking like a million dollars. I offered them 300,000 for it after like, it'd been on the market for about a year and they accepted it, 300,000. I bought that bank building and and one of my friends really was bugging me like going like oh man can i buy that bank building with you could i buy that with you i didn't really need him to help me buy the bank building but because he was my friend and he was really like wanted to get some real estate i said sure fine so he ended up getting half of the bank building for really doing nothing and uh that bank building i sold it in like 12 years later two million dollars he got half of it but i traded my half of it for another building on Commercial Street, which is the building where our wine store is.
1: So you're just like, and along the way you opened other restaurants, I saw in your bio that you have Bubla's by the Bay and Enzo. What's all that about? Did you become a food person by now? or I was always into food.
2: I'm, I've been making my own bread for years because it's really easy to make real bread. But nobody does it because it doesn't keep well, or I don't know why they don't do it. So I've been into food for a long time. My father was really into health food. He was way ahead of his time as far as that goes. I guess I I learned that from him.
1: So you're now 40 years in to your Provincetown residency, and you're still closed in the winter and go off someplace?
2: Oh, yeah, please. Well, you know, when I was a kid in college, uh, they had a job fair. And, you know, we had to get dressed up in suits and go down there and, like, pretend like we were looking for jobs, right? So, like, I did a few interviews with these big companies, you know, and I got the impression from them that they wanted me to work 50 weeks a year for, like, the next 40 years. You know what I mean for them? I was saying to myself, we were smoking a lot of pot at the time. I was saying to myself, they got to be fucking kidding me they want me to work 50 weeks a year like no way man there's got to be a better way than that so i did that i opened the pizza place and i only had to work like maybe 30 30 weeks a year you know what i mean i have a house in jamaica it's a nice it's a very nice place it's not super fancy or anything but i'm fixing it up because my kids told me that they really need new mattresses and a pool if i want them to come visit me all the time and now that i'm getting old and uh I didn't get my kids to come, I'm getting new matches and I'm probably gonna put in a pool.
1: So looking back and thinking ahead, Mm -hmm. what's next?
2: I do have one more pizza place I probably would like to open and I do own the property already where I could put it. It would be a different kind of pizza place than what I have now. It would be a pizza place that sold those like little pizzas that cook in like two minutes. Have you ever been to one of those pizza places where they sell like little pizzas and they yeah. cook them in a wood-fired oven? Yeah. And that's like printing money, those kind of places. So I think I'm going to open one of those. I only really own the property, but there's some things I have to work out before I can actually open a restaurant there again. There was a restaurant there at one time. I'll probably do that. If I sell Bubblas, that's what I would do.
1: When I listen to your story, this happened... That happened. Then I essentially translated that into the next, you know, big step up the ziggurat. And do you think that it would be as easy in this environment for somebody like you to succeed as it was going back those decades?
2: I guess it. I probably not at what I did, but but maybe at some other things it would be easier. Who knows? You know. I mean, there's, there's always opportunities for people who can figure it out and, you know, whatever, beat the system that that's kind of designed to keep you down, basically. So you have to figure out how to beat it. It's probably harder to do a restaurant, definitely, because right now, I mean, even to build anything in Provincetown is a nightmare. Like it used to be that we would just draw something on a piece of paper and take it into the building inspector and say, this is what we're going to do. These are what the setbacks are. And he would go, okay, $25, make sure you get those setbacks right. I'm going to come check. That would be it. Now, I mean, now, you need an engineer, an architect, a designer. You need a team to go in there. And then you have to go to the Zoning Board of Appeals because no matter what you do, there's something in there. That you got to go to zoning. For the Zoning Board, you need like 10 sets of plans. They cost you like $300 a set. I mean, it's fucking ridiculous. And you have to go to historical, and you have to get more plans for them. You can't use the same plans. Like, why can't you use the same plans? You know, they could make it so much easier, but they don't. It's a lot more difficult right now to do stuff. Yeah, like that.
1: but right. you know, you're absolutely right. Where there's a will, there's a way. My sense is that your entrepreneurial spirit—if it hadn't been pizza, it would have been something else.
2: Right. I think that's probably true. I mean, it's just that pizza was what I knew how to do, and I could have probably learned something else if I had to. But pizza was it was easy, you know, <laughs> and. I, <laughs> and it it was it's really a nice, easy way to make a living. It's not not bad at all.
1: <laughs> this has been so great, really. Thank you so much. Very fun a, f- a fun story, a fun guy, an incredible story. And along the way, it seems to me that you encountered all of the all the changes that uh, that Provincetown has been making over all these years. It's become a very different place. And when I go there now, it looks almost establishment.
2: Well, it is establishment. It's like very, very wealthy people live in Provincetown, like extremely wealthy people, like billionaires. A lot of billionaires live in Provincetown. And and everybody that lives in Provincetown and owns a house is a millionaire. And real estate in Provincetown has been a really good investment. We can talk about food if you want to talk about food. I love food. You know,
1: <laughs> I know that even billionaires eat pizza. So I know you're safe.
2: That's right, they do. Everybody eats pizza, and pizza's really good. Little tweaks that we have to do all the time, but our pizzas, I think it's as good as any pizza, that kind of pizza anywhere. anywhere. It's really good. <laughs> wow. The pizza place does really well, but the restaurants don't make a lot of money because we spend so much money on the food. We use the best olive oil we can get, we use all the best ingredients we can get, and most restaurants don't do that. I would say ninety percent of them use the cheap, go to the cheapest comedy denominator to try to make as much money as they can.
1: Well, they would they would like to, but they are driven by the the need to make money.
2: I think that it's beyond that. The, the making the money is the most important thing. And I listen. I don't begrudge people for that because I understand you got to make money to survive. But I think uh, probably restaurants could up their uh, thing a little bit. When you go out there in the world and you eat in restaurants. It's a little bit like the hokey pokey, you know? You never know what's going to happen.
1: I think this is great. I love this story. Thank you so much, John Yingling. I'm coming to Provincetown. Thank you, John, and thank you, Mike Moss. What a fun story. That was just great. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team producer rachel gottbaum and sound engineer and composer michael moss of soundscape boston you can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts let's talk about food is powered by simplecast thanks for listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you.